The text this morning is John 3, 16 through 21. Um, Have any of you ever seen a sign with this on it? This is like the verse. Like often I come to a passage and I say, this might be one of the more popular passages, but I think like this is the verse that everybody knows, no matter who you are. John 3, 16. Have any of you raised your hand? Have you, any of you ever made a sign? I'd just like to see anyone. Come on. Really? Okay. And you've held it up at things? Darrell? <laughs> okay. I'd, it's perfect. Well, the risk is, you know, I've said before, in Fort Collins, we would drive to church by this furniture store, and every, t- every Sunday, they were going out of business. And that kind of, the fear of that is, okay, you've heard this verse before, but it can transform you. So let's be transformed this morning by the word of God. Starting at verse 16, going through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I praise you that you are a God of love. So much so that we don't know what to do in the face of that. I pray your spirit would prepare us this morning to be moved a little bit closer into understanding what that means. We know that we can't grasp it all at once. Father, if there are unbelievers here in this room, I pray they would hear the beauty of Jesus, of your love. Amen. Um, I've told, I think I've told part of this story before, but in high school, I wasn't like a rebel but I wasn't the person moms want their boys, their daughters dating, right, Emily? I wasn't quite that guy. In fact, our junior prom, I thought it'd be a brilliant idea to bring uh, an adult beverage into the after prom party. Um, so I'm foolish. I got caught, which was good. Emily had to go home early because we were on a date together, kind of. And um, I was ashamed. And I thought, and I had been told, you are going to have to miss like three or four days of school and, and all this stuff. And then I get a phone call from my grandfather. And he says, let's go to breakfast tomorrow. And then we're going to go golfing. And I, I remember sitting there at breakfast with my granddad, waiting for the talk, waiting for that shaming thing. And it never came. We acknowledged that what I had done was wrong. But he was there to celebrate with me that he loved me. He knew how I felt. 
He knew I, was, I felt wrong. And then we went and golfed, and we never talked about it. Now, that's not a perfect picture of parenting. He wasn't the perfect grandfather, but that moment meant a lot. He was the father figure in my life, and in this moment where I thought I would crumble, he came up underneath me and showed me a love I had not seen before. And, and my encouragement for you this morning is to let down your guard just a hair, because I really think we are all a little afraid of that reckless love of God. We are a little bit afraid of, like, what does that mean if he could love us as much as this passage seems to indicate that he loves us? So my goal this morning would be that everyone in the room, if you're not a Christian, that for the first time you might actually hear, Jesus might actually love me. And if you are a Christian, no matter where you are on that journey, that you could be moved a little bit forward in understanding God's love for you. So we're going to look at three things, the place, the cost, and the process. The, the passage, we're just going to take this verse and unpack it. For God so loved the world. Uh, confession, I'm a Calvinist. Uh, and often Calvinists come to this verse and we crush it. And I don't mean in a good way. Like, you crushed it. I mean, like, we kill it. Because we spend all of our time on defining the word world. And I am going to unpack what it means right now. But I want us to please not fall into the trap of losing sight of the beauty of the fact that Jesus is telling a ruler in the religion, the highest in that day, God loves the world. Now, what does that mean? Um, for a Jewish person at that time, they would have not been unfamiliar with hearing that God loves Israel, that God loves the children of Israel. What would have been shocking for Nicodemus would have been to hear that God also loves all the nations. That God, now, when you hear the word world, like right now, what do we, we have like National Geographic, like a globe taken from outer space. Like, they didn't have that. They didn't see, like, the globe. They didn't know the world was round. Some of you don't believe it's round. <laughs> and Lord help us. But they did know that it was vast, and it had lots of people. And for the, for the Jewish leader at that time, the thought that God could love the outsider was somewhat foreign. But I want to just um, unpack what D.A. Carson says. He says, God's love is not restricted by race. But even so, it is to be admired not because the world is so big that it includes, and it includes so many people, but because the world is so bad that it is customary connotation of the word cosmos, which is the Greek word for world here, that the world is so wicked that elsewhere John in 1 John forbids Christians to love it. And by that he means to participate in its simple practices. So let's remind ourselves of this story, right? Um, in the garden, everything was shalom. Everything was perfect. In the fall, shalom was broken. And the world was literally sent catapulting away from God. Without his reckless love, that would have been the state leading to ultimate death. You know the movie Gravity? That scene where like Clooney's like cut loose and he just goes, and your mind just can't imagine like how far away. Like that's going to never stop. That's where we were in the fall. And that's where we are as individuals without God's reckless love coming toward us. Now, 
I want to just also remind us of the way that kind of takes shape. I, um, when I think of that concept, I don't know where your mind goes. Often I think of like a dystopian novel like, or a movie like Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome. Anyone? Yeah, that's what I envision. Like, the wor- like God, Jesus is saying the world is dark. And, and everyone's riding around on like motorcycles made out of their blender, you know, and they're trying to like, every man for himself. But he's talking to an awesome guy. He's talking to the guy that if we formed another pulpit committee, this is the guy you would have gone after. Like, you know, Ryan, mm, like this guy, he's the ruler, he's the this, he's the that, he's got the resume. And what I love about Nicodemus, as we talked about last week, is he really does see Jesus, and he really does become a Christian. But for that class of people, that is the Pharisee, this was the farthest thing from their mind. And that's who Jesus is talking about. Not only the Pharisees, not only religious people, but they're certainly included. Darkness. Darkness is trying to live a self-deceived life apart from Jesus. Trying to live your life as if you can solve it yourself. That is darkness. It leads to horrible, sinful, grotesque things you see in the newspaper that you can't believe you're reading. But it also leads to people who look glorious and you want to be in their presence all the time. Right? But it's both dark. Uh, I heard someone talking about, um, the, it's called the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I probably shouldn't even bring it up. Should have done some more research. The Flynn... Something, concept. Let me just tell you what this guy said. This guy in like the, like the 1950s or 60s had this theory that people were getting smarter, their IQs were going up, and it really is kind of a, it's, it's a play on modernism, right? That we're getting better. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. Like, you know, human beings are getting better and better. And, and essentially, that has been completely debunked. Um, in fact, Prior to like World War One, that was even a more that's where modernity was really on the rise, and then you have World War One and then World War Two, and you have like society realizing we're educated, like we have communications, we can talk, and we're still doing these horrible things, and it kind of reminds us that no matter on which side you're on, whether things are like really glorious and you think you're on top, or whether you're in the newspaper for bad reasons, this world is dark. And I don't understand why God would pursue it. Remember that show, um, I, I'm bad. The show where, the restoration show. What's, back with Ty, he drove the bus and they blocked the view. Remember that show? I love that show. Because like, they would come and restore homes for people that had a great story. But you remember what happened about two seasons in? They quit restoring the homes. They just finally like, you know, we're just going to demolish the whole thing, clear it off, and build a new one. It's far easier. I'm sure it's a better budget. We can have all of our stuff pre-cut. We give ourselves like a self-limited one week. Who knows why they did that? Because it could have taken a month or two. We wouldn't have cared. But they felt like they had to do it like in an afternoon. And it created stress. But why did God not do that? Like, why did God not just say, cut it off? Let's start again. And the answer is... There are people on that globe that are his. There are sheep that he is loving and coming for. What makes this passage so hard is it kind of creates this duality where it sounds on one hand like the whole world is completely lost, 
But on the other hand, there are people who will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and it makes it very difficult. And though I'm not going to dive completely into trying to answer that for you, what you need to know is this. If you want to believe in Jesus, you get to. Right? You don't have to go, well, what if I'm not? If you want Jesus, he already wants you. And let me even go further. If you want Jesus, not only does he want you, but God the Father from the beginning of time has known you and had a plan for your redemption. That's a reckless love. It's also reckless because we see that John and Jesus tells us he gave his only son. What does that mean? Um, first of all, let's make sure the first point is understood. The problem is so severe that there's only one viable way it can be carried out. If you hear that he sent his only son and wonder, was there not another option? You haven't got point number one yet. If you think, couldn't we have done something different? You don't realize how depraved you are or were without Jesus. But now, we see in this very same verse, he sends his only son. And we all probably start theologically where we should, right? Um, and back in verse 13, this connects, by the way, to this speech with Nicodemus. And then verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And so all of us wanting eternal life along with Nicodemus, Jesus is saying the only way you're going to have eternal life and be able to enter heaven is if heaven first came to you, and we call that alien righteousness. You need a righteousness from outside of yourself to rescue you. That is what this means. He gave his only son. It means that your sin was poured onto him. We call that propitiation. Right, do you hear these theological terms? It means you were adopted. Okay? So my question is, what's your story? I remember hearing once, my parents were divorced when I was one, so I, and whenever I did any kind of interview, especially for like RUF or ministry, I would, tell us about yourself. Well, I was raised in a divorced home. Someone told me that's very, very common for people of divorce. I don't know, I've not done the study, but my guess is if someone was adopted, that would be a similar storyline. Tell me about yourself. Well, I was adopted. So when someone says, tell me your story, how many of you say, well, let me let you know that the God of the universe adopted me. Now, you wouldn't say that in an interview, unless it was for a church. But do you think it? Is that your identity? How connected did you feel to the word propitiation? Isn't that odd how theology does that? We take these like, deep things and give them words that like, turn you off. So let's take a different route. Um, I was talking to my children through this passage this week, and one of my daughters like, like, he gave his son. Like, John, is, we're being encouraged to be emotional. Like, God was sad. He did not go, yeah, I'm going to give you my son. There was sorrow. How sorrowful would you be to give your child? God felt more sorrow, not less. Well, he's God. 
He knows the future. We all know the future. We all know we're going to heaven if we're in Christ. That doesn't make pain any easier. God felt sorrow. And I want to remind you that God uses stories and emotions to get to our hearts. Remember the story of Nathan trying to get King David to wake up to his stony heart. He tells him a story. Right? What does he tell him? David, there's a man in your kingdom who has lots of sheep, and someone was coming to visit him. And so instead of using one of the sheep he had and, and preparing that as a meal, he went to his neighbor's home who had one little ewe lamb. And he loved that lamb. It was like his daughter. Emotion. David's buying it. What, what happened? What happened? He stole that lamb and killed it. David just comes out of his skin. Right? Do you come out of your skin when you hear this story that God gave his only son? That's sadness. And I hope that would cause us to maybe even a little bit go, like, what do I do with that? What do I do at the news that Jesus is standing there with Nicodemus, looking him in the eyes and telling him this story? God so loved you that he sent his only son for you. So what I think we do is we develop strategies to deflect. Right? We all are very good at that. We can deflect. We can move on. We come up with theological words, and I love theology. It's absolutely critical. Please don't hear me despairing of that. But we hide behind things. We hide behind books and, and humor and other ways to deflect the fact that the God of the universe in verse 16 this morning wants you to hear God loves you so much that he gave his only son. Does that do anything? I hope so. So what does it do? It gives us joy, right? It gives us excitement. God's love is so reckless that he has given us this gospel that says we will not perish but you have eternal life, present tense. You have eternal life. Do you believe that you have, right now, eternal life? I think my default is to put that in the future. And it is. It's going to be in the future. Like, let me, again, give you the theology. One day, someday, Jesus will return, and all of our, everything sad will become untrue. I mean, it'll be glorious, and I do not want to despair of that, but it breaks in now. Right? We're not just waiting around for that. In fact, he says he so loves the world that he uses us, the church, who are redeemed to love the world. But I don't know that we're doing a great job of that. And I think the primary reason we don't do a good job of that is we tell the world, if you'll come in this building and do what we talk about, you'll be really good people. Is that the message we're sending? Right? Um, let's look back at this passage. What is right before verse 16, John, uh, or Jesus, excuse me, has just reiterated or pre-iterated that whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, may have eternal life. But let me remind you, I did a bad, week, a bad job last week on this, so I'm going to try it again. Verse 14, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, those of you that were here last week are like, oh, I heard this last week. I don't want to hear it again. Numbers 21, in the wilderness, Israel's grumbling. And not just grumbling, they're basically rebelling. And so what Jesus shows us here is that it's sort of a type of the way humankind rebelled against God. And the, and the Israelites rebel, and the snakes come into the camp, and they're bitten, and people are dying. And so God has a solution that through Moses, the mediator, he builds a bronze snake, puts it on a pole, and lifts it very high. And the part I maybe didn't tell you last week, I was debriefing with my wife, and she said, you never told the end. Did I? When you're bitten by the snake, what I've heard was it was so painful you didn't want to look at anything, and to crane your neck to the sky and look at this bronze, shiny thing would have been excruciatingly painful. But what it does is, according to what we see in numbers in here, is it healed the snake bite. You were free. You were healed. Redemption, glory, right? But then another snake might come in. The snakes didn't go away. It wasn't, hey, just kill the snakes, Moses. Wouldn't that have been, like, awesome? He doesn't. He says, no, the snakes are going to come in. They're going to keep biting you. But I have a solution. Right? And it's, it's Jesus lifted up, which obviously references both the cross but the ascension. He's at the right hand of God. We are safe. We are, we are raised with Christ. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel. It is so reckless that while you're sitting here in this room, in a mysterious yet more real way than I can grasp, you have died and been risen with Christ. So the snake bite. And we move into our passage then. Where is the snake bite in our passage? Um, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Isn't that an interesting statement? Who thought that? Like, who, who, who thought, no, what? I didn't assume that you were going to condemn the world. Why would you just tell me that? Isn't it kind of like the original audience would have been somewhat surprised by that? Like, certainly Jesus showed up to condemn us because we're bad. We're broken. But he didn't. He came to rescue you, right? And um, the passage kind of goes through this, some hard places. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, right? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. What are they loving? They're not, yes, they might be loving horrific, technicolored sin things that shouldn't be done, but they also might just love life apart from their maker. Either way, it's evil and it's dark, and it's not what we're meant to do, and it leads to perishing. But then I want to just draw our attention to verse 21. It's a challenging verse. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. A few chapters later in John 8, toward the end of the chapter, Jesus is in a conversation. And it's a mixture of disciples and Pharisees. And he explains, I am the light of the world. Right? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Very similar language. 
I'm bringing it up now because it's probably going to be like next June before we get there. So let's jump in now. Whoever, um, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he begins to interact with these Pharisees. And finally, in verse 31, Jesus says to those that believe, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How does that work? And that's what he's saying in our passage, isn't it? Um, That's been a tricky um, verse. How does the truth lead to the light, right? Verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Augustine said this, it's to acknowledge that we are miserable and destitute of all power of doing good. So I think you have a step process. You have first step, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the fact of the truth, that you're not as good as you think, that things aren't as great as they seem, that the game may not be going as well as we had hoped. What does that do? That drives you to the light, which is Jesus. And you, and you all of a sudden, you realize that's my identity. That's my adoption. That's who I am. And then what I love is the way the verse ends. And you will respond not only with works that are glorious, but you won't attribute them to yourselves. You'll see that they've been carried out in God. That's what the new life looks like. But let me tell you, it's not easy. Because everything in us hates pain. We hate pain. And guess what truth is? Have you ever had someone say to you, can I tell you the truth? What do you do right there? You wince. Oh, goodness. First of all, you go, why weren't you going to do that? You know. Now you just say, I'm not going to lie to you. Were you going to lie to me a minute ago? Um, this is profound. Whenever um, people see truth, they tend to get into action. Have you ever, you know, people that are activists about any, I'm not talking negative, like positive, like we're going to clear asbestos, I don't know, from the globe. Like that person will know more about that topic than you'll ever know. And guess what they do subsequently? They launch into action, right? And they cannot believe the rest of the world. Don't you know that these will kill you? Like, you put it by your ear, and they go on a crusade. Why? Because someone close to them had a problem, and they've done some research, and the truth came to bear, and they realized, you're all missing it. Isn't that the gospel? Like, we finally can look at the truth and go, oh my, I need a Savior. I was reading, I've referenced this book, and I'm just going to encourage everybody that likes books to buy the book so that the next time I reference it, you at least own it. The Whole Christ, okay? Sinclair Ferguson, excellent book. In it, he says, um, talking about how the New Testament describes us as being in Christ over a hundred times in Paul's letters. He says, if this is not the overwhelmingly dominant way in which we think about ourselves, we are not thinking with the renewed mind of the gospel. Is that how you think of yourself? In Christ. He goes on to say, without that perspective, it is highly likely that we will have a tendency to separate Christ from his benefits and abstract those benefits from him. 
as though we possess them in ourselves. And I think you can do that in two ways. One way is you can think, I go to Jesus, I get filled up, and then I go out by myself and I do good things, right? That's one way you can do it. But you can also do it with, like, I believe in justification by faith. So I don't really talk about Jesus anymore. I just talk about that doctrine. Because to talk about Jesus is risky. Because he has a face, right? He has eyes. He is real. Justification by faith is very heady and gives me a wide range of protection. So both sides, we need to come back to Jesus and recognize that when we move toward him, we actually don't have the things happen that we always hoped. We might actually see problems and issues and and areas that need cleaning, but he will do that for us. We sing about this all the time. I love our songs, and I can't find this one. There it is. John Newton. Everyone know who John Newton is? Slave trader, becoming a pastor. Wrote Amazing Grace, like the most famous song ever, right? That's a pretty good resume. You can stop there, John. You're good. But he goes on to write letters and other hymns, and I want to read you the one that we sing quite often. And I just, as we're kind of closing, I want you to see this process of the reckless love of God. John, the first stanza, I'm going to sort of paraphrase. I ask the Lord that I might grow. Essentially, I'm doing what you want. I want to grow in grace. I want to become more holy. Second uh, stanza, basically, God, you taught me to pray that way, right? Um, so I did. Third stanza, I hoped that in some favored hour, you, he would answer my request And by love's constraining power, he would subdue my sin and give me rest. Like, that's what I want. Who doesn't want that? Take away pain. Take away sin. Instead, stanza four, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe He crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He cast out my feelings and laid me low. So six of of the seven stanzas, the sixth one is John saying, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And here's the answer. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. That thou may seek thy all in me. If you want a Christianity that doesn't ring true to that, I don't know how you're going to like this church because the gospel teaches us that this is the truth, that we move in to these places with Jesus. And please don't hear it. For every look at sin, you take 10 looks at the cross. But what you don't want to do is go, for every look at sin, we come up with 10 strategies or schemes. You see the difference? We look at Jesus. Why? Not just so he'll take away the sin, yes, but he'll actually uncover the deeper unbelief that's plaguing our soul. I just want to close with an illustration, and I don't know if it's going to work, I just had a conversation this week with a person who used to attend here, and um, we keep in touch, and she was explaining that she has some anxiety. 
And she knows, I mean, theology very well and has processed a lot of this stuff. And um, she just said the comment, like, how can Jesus love me when I'm anxious? Like, the Bible says, do not be anxious. And I just wanted to weep for her because I think most of us have that mindset. Like, I feel depressed. Jesus can't love me. What? I feel So he only loves me when I'm feeling joyful and happy? We're getting it backwards, right? We're getting it backwards. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you, right? And our anxiety and our depression is part of the fall, and there are many reasons for that that we need to dig into, but it will not come through easy schemes. It will come as we move toward Jesus. Please do not make your goal to be pain-free. The goal is Jesus, to be near him, to abide in him, to walk with him. Let's pray. We praise you, God the Father, for the reckless love that you would send your only begotten son to my dark heart. Lord, none of us had anything in us that could have earned your salvation. Even the belief is a gift. Forgive us for taking credit. Forgive us for developing strategies to avoid the profound nature of your love. And I pray this morning you would move us a little forward in our understanding and belief that you indeed love us and cherish us and will not let us go. Amen.